Thanks for checking out the Candeo podcast. To learn more about us, visit us at candeochurch.com. Good morning, Candeo. My name is Scott Rieger. I'm going to jump in right into the nitty gritty. Some of you may know me, some of you uh, may don't. So let me introduce myself. I'm a husband to my wife, Julie Rieger. Uh, it'll be 23 years uh, this year. Um, I'm a father to three children, an 18-year-old daughter named Addison, who's now at the University of Iowa, a 15-year-old daughter who's a freshman uh, at Waterloo West, an 11-year-old son who's in fifth grade um, at Orge Elementary School. I graduated from Iowa State University. I have a degree in sociology with a minor in criminal justice studies. For the last 25 years of my life, I've worked in state law enforcement, and I'm an elder and pastor here at Candeo. Some of you just heard me use the term pastor or elder, and you went, hey, Scott, it's nice to see you again. Uh, what took you so long to get back up in front of our people, right? You know that that's true. That's what we do here uh, at Candeo. But for others, you might be saying to yourself right now, you might be going, uh, okay, wait a minute. I know this guy is called an elder. I've seen him before. I think he's on our, on our website and stuff like that. But what exactly is he doing on stage? Um, why is he here? Did he actually just use the word pastor, like to identify himself? Um, I th thought he just said he works for, for the state. Is he actually going to preach? Like, I don't think that's his job, right? Like, I thought he, you know, like if he's an elder, he deals with budgets. He deals with, hey, what rooms get the paper plates? What kind of uh, logistical things are going on in our church? Like, did something horrible happen to Jake and Cody and Stephen that they're not up here this Sunday morning? I'm telling you, oftentimes we have a lot of confusion as it surrounds the term pastor or elder, which we're going to see in Titus chapter 1 today. So several weeks ago, as I prepared to teach this passage, I started to think through the makeup of our church and who we've been over the last nine, nine and a half years. And I found myself asking this question. I said, what has the common experience been of people at Candeo prior to coming here in regards to that term elder, or in regards to that term pastor. So this is what I did. I asked kind of a cross-section of our body. I shot him a text uh, a couple weeks ago and said, hey, before you came to Candeo, what did you know the term elder to be? Here's some of the responses that I got. Okay, this is coming straight from you guys, so some of you might, might hear this in here. Somebody said this, certainly somebody who's above 50 years old. Yep, you get some chuckles because outside of two of our elders right now, the rest of us don't meet that qualification. I'm 47. I still got a few years ago. Somebody else said this. They said, I grew up Catholic, so I would have associated it with a priest or a deacon, maybe a closer status with God. Somebody else said this. They said, men or women who serve communion and are available to pray with people during worship or between services. They're actively involved in the church happenings and its ministries. Somebody else said this. They said it's a description for a mature adult, male or female. But I had a feeling it referenced some hierarchy in the church. So someone of considerable life experience, so somewhat aged more than youthful. Detecting kind of a pattern here. Somebody else said this. They, they called an elder a super Christian. Someone who had like had everything all figured out. Somebody else said this. Somebody who sits on a board, like a board of directors, decision makers, they figure out budgets, um, paper cups, they tell the pastor what he can and cannot do. And finally, somebody said this, and I think this one probably struck me the most as they said this. They said, platform leaders. 
Men who lead only when they are up front of people. As I thought through the different paradigms that I knew that people had probably experienced, you might be coming in this morning going, I, I have an idea or I have a paradigm that I've seen the lens of elder through. It reminded me of how important it is to allow the Bible to be our framework when we talk about what an elder is, but also what an elder is not. Last week, we started teaching through the book of Titus, and we're going to continue that throughout this spring. And as we continue teaching through Titus this morning, we have to ask ourselves, Cody kind of started this last week, if Titus, right, the, if, if Titus, the letter that, that Paul wrote to Titus in Crete, if this is a blueprint for what a gospel-changed life looks like, then church elders should model these qualities first and call others to do health-wise. What we're going to see this morning is that healthy churches hinge on healthy leaders. This is how Paul starts. I have two goals today, is to continue this drumbeat of Titus where we're going to see over and over and over again this spring that a gospel-changed life should look like something. And we're gonna see those qualities listed out for us in Titus, particularly this morning. But also, that our elders, the men that God has called to lead our church, should be setting the pace. We should be examples to the flock of what it looks like to have a gospel-changed life. So if you've got your Bibles with you or you got it on your app, let's open up to uh, Titus. If you're new to the Bible, Titus is just to the left of Hebrews. It's towards the end. It's just to the right of First and Second Timothy. It's kind of tucked in there a little bit. It's easy to, to swing past. We're going to continue on teaching in Titus. Uh, Cody took us through the first four verses. I get the next five. We've got a lot to pack in um, in these five verses. So we're going to be in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. It says this. Says Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was to set right what was left undone, and as I directed you, to appoint elders in every town, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of wildness or rebellion. For an overseer as God's administrator must be blameless, not arrogant, not hot tempered, not addicted to wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, righteous, holy, self controlled holding to the faithful messages taught so that he will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. We're going to be in these five verses this morning and Paul starts off right away and tells Titus, hey, there is a reason I left you in Crete. It's to set right what was undone. And so how do we see God beginning his blueprint to set right what was left undone? He starts with its leaders. The idea of church leadership is so important to God that if you look at the New Testament, God addresses this issue in detail at four different times in the New Testament. And I'll leave it up to you to go to flesh this out this week. If you read through Acts 20, 1 Timothy 3, which we taught through, I think, a couple years ago, here in Titus and in 1 Peter 5, God spends a lot of time talking about church governance, governance, or, or sometimes you'll hear the word church polity. That's the same thing, right? Paul wrote these commands 2,000 years ago, so that people back then, and the same thrill holds true for us to now, would not just do as we please. Because that's our bent, isn't it, as human beings? We think we can do it better than God. And so we start to take things, you know, at our own liberty. Titus was, Titus was getting these words from Paul so that he would understand that these directives were binding for them as he built God's church on the island of Crete. So why do you think that God would place so much importance on how his church is organized? Why does structure matter so much to God? It seems like one of those things where like, it makes sense for us 
uh, uh, secular human beings, but why does God care about governance? Dr. Tom Constable describes the importance in this way. I think this is super helpful. He says this. He says, the church was God's chosen vehicle to come to the truth of who God is and his plan to save people from their sin. And once that truth is believed, it's intended to change people's lives. What that means is obedience to God's good design uh, for us in a fallen world. And the context in which that is modeled best is within the church. The church is supposed to reflect to a watching world what it looks like to be set apart for God. In church this morning, I guarantee you there is a world around us that is watching us as a church body and what it looks like to be set apart for God. This is why God takes it so important. Titus, as we learned last week, was Paul's Navy SEAL. He went into the hard places of church planning. And right away, we see here in Titus uh, chapter one, that Titus gets this like priority tasking. The first thing he is tasked with doing, the first order of business is to appoint elders in every town. That's how he's gonna start this blueprint of getting things back the way God wanted them to be. So quick note, real quick, whenever you see the word elder, think pastor. Those two terms are interchangeable throughout the Bible. All right, we're gonna see that um, repeatedly here, even a little bit this morning. But I want, uh, I want to look at something very briefly there because right away when he, tells, when he tells Titus, he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to appoint elders in every town. There'd be something that if you didn't pay attention to it, one small letter that I think has a huge impact on what healthy church organization looks like. It's the letter S. Did you notice that? When he tells Titus, he says, appoint elders in every town. I think it's particularly important to understand this for a couple of reasons. Is first, all over the Bible in the New Testament, we see God calling healthy churches to have a plurality of church leaders, to have a plurality of eldership. I don't have the time to go into specifically today, but if you wanna mark these two uh, verses in your Bible and go back and look to them this week, look up Acts 14, 23, and in James 5.14, there are two specific references to the plurality of elders that we're gonna see all throughout the New Testament. What we see when we read the Bible is that New Testament authors consistently record the local church in a particular city as embracing all of the believers in that city. Here's, here's why this is important, right? We often think in terms of uh, plurality of elders in our modern view, particularly in the United States. We are a Christian nation, right? So if you walk into the Cedar Valley, there is a variety of churches that you can go to because we're all Christian, right? Well, we have to zoom back and go back 2,000 years and go, what was it like to call yourself a Christian back in Paul's day? It got you killed. It got you hunted down. To, to call yourself a Christian was not one of those things where you're looking around and going, where can I go to church today? What we see consistently in the New Testament is that when you called yourself a Christian, you were looking for probably one central hub that very few people also called themselves Christian went to. So when you hear the church in Rome, there was a church in Rome back then. When you hear the church in Corinth, there was a church in Corinth. And what we see consistently is New Testament authors always talk about the local church within a particular city. You never see the author speaking of churches within a city, only the church. What this wins me to, right? And I grew up a, a fundamentalist Baptist background where you had a guy. What this has won me to is that within each church, there should be a plurality of elders, a group of men. Well, the reason, the second reason I think this is so important about plurality of leadership is way more probably practical reality than anything else. 
What I've had the opportunity to see over the last nine years here at Candale is how this has played out within your local church. And I see it right here in 2023. Newsflash Candale, Candale was never Paul Sabino's church. Okay? It was never Paul Sabino's church back then. Candale Church is not Jake Herring's church today. This church is not Cody Klein's church. This church belongs to one person, one person alone, and that's Jesus Christ. Practically, this is how we've always functioned, and I love the beauty that comes in here because our elder team fully believes that Jesus is the chief shepherd of Candeo Church. And the group of guys that you've affirmed, we are simply his under-shepherds. Within this plurality, here's what I love about this, is these guys that have been a part of Candale's elders over the last, the elder team over the last nine years, I've got to watch them be a group of guys that shepherd together, that teach together, that cast vision for the group together, and they shoulder these responsibilities together. In the group of men that God's called to shepherd, Candeo Church, Newsflash as well. They didn't all graduate from seminary. Some of them are architects. Some of them are plumbers. Some of them are retired John Deere engineers. Some of them are current John Deere engineers. One of them runs Life 101.9 as the station manager. Right? There is a variety of different men that God has called into this, and we all serve the same function. This is for the health of our church because... For all the strengths that somebody might have, they balance out my weaknesses. And for the strengths that I might have, they balance out the other guys' weaknesses. This is how God has always designed it to be. I am so glad that we have both Jake Herrings and Bryant Hayes. I am glad that we have Cody Kleins and Scott Riegers. I'm glad that we have Zach Myers and we have Andrew Christmans because we balance each other out. God is always designed to have a plurality of leadership. And this is, this is not like some new idea that we cooked up within our network. This has always been the old way. This is actually us aligning ourselves with what the Bible says is true. So having all said, I think it's super important, but now that I've spent probably an ordinary amount of time dissecting the letter S, I promise you I'm not gonna di dissect every letter in these five verses. What else do we see in this blueprint? We see qualifications for the men that God has called to be elder. So what are these qualifications and why do they matter? Can't we just appoint anybody that we want to? Can't we be satisfied in simply having an elder team? Well, Alexander Strzok, who, who uh, wrote a book called Biblical Eldership, it's probably one of the foundational books that, that we've gone to in our church that I've gone to personally to help understand what the Bible says about uh, eldership. He says this. He says, it's not enough merely to have an eldership. The eldership must be actively functioning, competent, and spiritually alive. Those last two words are the ones that we're gonna spend the majority of our time on this morning. And, and please note this, when we study through uh, these five verses here, these qualifications that we're about to see, they're not some type of measure of spiritual piety. They're not some sort of bullet points on a resume so guys can get the elder job. They're measures of what God would call true spiritual health in a person's life, the evidence of true gospel change. And ultimately, all of these qualities that we're gonna see, you know who they're true about the most? They're true about God himself and Jesus, his son. Strzok asked this question in his book, Biblical Eldership. He says, how can a man be entrusted to teach and defend the gospel if his life discredits the gospel? That is why healthy churches have to start with healthy leaders. 
And this is why God is gonna take his time to instruct us on what that healthy eldership looks like. So let's look at these qualities. What we're about to see here as we jump into these five verses, we're gonna see that God cares way more about an elder's spiritual character and his spiritual abilities than anything else. Character like integrity is who we are when nobody else is watching. It's kind of in that dark places that nobody ever gets to see. That's where character exists. And Edmund Hybert says this, he says, in admitting a man to the ministry of an elder, the primary consideration must ever be the integrity of his character rather than his spectacular gifts. As we go through these, all of these qualities, you're going to see God cares about an elder's character. And it's, understand to, uh, it's important to understand this because in choosing leaders, what we will naturally gravitate to as people is the things that we think as human beings are most important. When we uh, prepared this message a couple weeks ago, maybe some of you know this, maybe you don't. Actually, when a message gets brought to you on a Sunday morning, you know it's brought by the whole team. Whoever's teaching two weeks from now will actually bring their message in front of the entire elder team and they'll make sure that it's in alignment with God's word and that we don't drive off on the ditches of whoever's particularly teaching. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Within that, as we were kind of framing in this, Zach Meyer said this, which he was one of our elders. This was really helpful. He asked this question. He goes, as we look through Titus 1, 5 through 9, do you notice some things that aren't on the list? There's nothing in there about an elder should have business sense. It says nothing about how many businesses he's built or you know, how he manages it at John Deere. It doesn't talk about eloquence. It doesn't talk about charisma. This might be a little punchy, but it, isn't, it doesn't even talk about a seminary degree. Now, these aren't qualities I'm trying to disparage or you know, throw off to the side. It's just oftentimes that we use those metrics or man's metrics to decide who should be leading God's church and not the ones that God has defined for us to be a measure of how we affirm the elders that leads God's church. Here's two reasons why God's biblical requirements center around character, not just what we can do. One, God is way more interested in who we are than what we do because he knows that out of the former is gonna flow the latter. He knows that if our character is true, our integrity is true, the what we do will follow. But this one I was continued to be captured by uh, maybe even more than anything else, and it's this, God knows that we as human beings will naturally boast in what we can do when really all we should be boasting in is what Christ has already done for us. And what I mean by that is this. Paul writes a bunch of letters in the New Testament. And one of my favorite letters, I'm actually studying through it this, uh, this year, is 1 Corinthians. And if you know 1 Corinthians, Paul was actually writing a letter to the church in, in Corinth that was totally jacked up. And within that church being totally jacked up, one of their biggest things is that they were divided based off of who they followed. Some said, I follow this Apollos guy. Other people said, I, I follow Paul. He's my, um, he's my man. Uh, some of them followed Cephas or Peter, right? The modern day equivalent would be this. You're like, I'm a Paul Sabino guy. Man, I, that guy was awesome. Or other people would be like, whoa, 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 that Paul Sabino, he's a little edgy. That Jake Herring guy, that's the guy that I follow. Or you're like, I love Cody. Cody's my guy, right? If we divided along those factions at Candeo Church, that would bring us right into where the Corinthian church was at back then, what Paul was trying to warn them away from. So listen to what Paul writes to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This is so good. He says, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration by the Spirit, 
so that your faith might not be based on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is coming from the guy, right, that everybody points to in the New Testament, right? This powerful man of God that God used. And what is Paul reminding us? He's like, our qualities need not be on the man themselves, but that we're boasting in Jesus Christ crucified. That is where our power comes from. God knows that out of who we are in him, when he changes our character, will flow what we do. And that's why he locks in on the importance of character of our elders being so important. So as you have that as kind of your framework, let's look at how that character and abilities start to take shape. So Paul begins laying these qualities out that we're supposed to identify. These are our elders who are gonna leave us or lead us. He starts out in verse six. He says, Titus, after you appoint elders in every town, we're to appoint one who is blameless. Your Bible might say above reproach. And this one is so important because out of all the other qualities we're gonna read this morning, blameless or above reproach is the one that it flows from. It's the overarching qualities that all the other qualities are gonna be subordinate to. It's so important, you're actually gonna hear Paul mention it another time. And when you hear things repeated in the Bible, we need to cue in on those because that's usually an indication it's pretty important. Now, when you see blameless or above reproach, don't think, oh, so elders are perfect. I can tell you to a man, myself included, we are not perfect. We're still fallible guys, right? There's only one infallible being and that's God. It doesn't mean that elders would be perfect, but the elder should be a man whose personal character and integrity is so robust that you can't attack it with any degree of credibility. People might try and attack it, but is it credible? That's what Paul's talking about. So first, first order of business is God said this overarching qualities of our elders to, they're to be blameless or above reproach. Now look where God goes next. And I believe this is super significant because where you really see the character of a man play out is in two critical areas, in his marriage and in his family. These two areas are the proving ground of what it looks like to have godly character. He continues in verse six. He says, one who is blameless, the husband of one wife. Now the term husband indicates very quickly who the office of elder is for. And that is that that position of elder is for men. Stephen's gonna talk about men's and women's roles, I think a little bit later in Titus. But within this, I just wanna pull over and park for just a second because I think that Satan would love to take this issue and make it divide our church or divide our churches. I'm, gonna let, I'm not gonna let Satan lie about God because what Satan would love to do in this moment is say, because God has given this role to men, he's devalued women. Guys, that is a lie from Satan. I wanna talk about why that is. Candeo, because God assigned men the role of elder is not a statement of value. Please hear me say that. Women of Candeo, hear me say that. This is not a statement of value. It's simply a statement of structure. God builds his church. He has the right to tell it what to do. And he knows what's best for it. God has given the assignment of elder to men. And this is part of what his good design is. And here's what this, I don't know if this is gonna track or not. This is just what the, what's been helpful for me is that within the design of equal in value, but different in roles, I immediately go to my heart and my brain. I can't live without either of, either of them, but I cannot take my heart and put it where my brain is. It doesn't function very well that way. And neither does my brain function well in pumping blood, right? They, they both are equal in value, but they have different roles to serve in my body. And you remove either one of those, what happens? We die, 
It's a simple way to help understand that God's design is what's best for all of this. But you know what else helps me understand God's goodness in this area? Is that he knows what our sinful hearts are gonna chase after and he knows what's not best for us. God knows this. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8 because I think this is helpful too. And this again, he's trying to write to a church where saying, don't get locked on the things that, that men got locked into. He says this, he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? They're servants through whom you have believed and each has the role the Lord has given. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Here's, here's why I think this is so helpful in understanding um, the idea of, of men having this, this assignment, is that we as human beings always wanna argue about the through whom portion of the Bible. We always want to argue about the through whom God is doing his work in. It's, and it, I think the reason we do this is because we attach importance to things that God doesn't see as important. He's like, don't worry about it, right? Let my design play out. We worry more about whether or not the planter, right, Paul, is more important than the, the one who planted the water. And God's just saying, look at the one who's using both of these things to accomplish his purposes. And I love what it says there in verse eight, because I think this unifies. It says, the one planting and the one watering are one in purpose. Men and women of Candea, we should be united under the banner of Jesus Christ for the one purpose of using God's plan A to get the gospel to the lost world. I hope that we're always reminded of this, that even though God's given us different roles, we have that one purpose. Because I think when we realize this, the division that Satan would love to create in this area quickly falls away. So now that we've seen how husband informs who can hold this role of elder, let's talk about what kind of husband does God want. And what Paul tells Titus is God wants a husband of one wife, which literally means a one woman man. One of Satan's most prominent ways to disrupt God's good design for human beings is to do what? To go after his good design for human sexuality. He loves to blow thing, blow up God's good design. And we know that that design for sexual intimacy is between one man and one woman together in marriage for a lifetime. Satan will do anything to blow that up. And he knows that by doing that within the context of a church's leadership, he can, he can gain credence, he can, he can do that. Bottom line is this, is that an elder should be a man who is in love with, committed to, and devoted to with all of his eyes, mind, and body to only one woman, and that woman is to be his wife. I think John MacArthur says it well when he says, an elder must have an unsullied reputation for devotion to his spouse and to sexual purity. That's what God is calling elders to be. So now that we've looked at the first character or the importance that God places on the character of the elder, we're gonna see kind of a, cha a change a little bit from this character into some of the abilities, but you're actually gonna see the character and the abilities merge in a really important context, and that's the uh, management of a family. But know this, as we kind of uh, end with the last, uh, last four verses here, Paul is gonna lay out what to examine in terms of an elder's abilities, and they all flow out of his character. And we can think of these abilities in four different ways. We can look at how does, a, uh, how does an elder manage? How does an elder model? And then how does an elder teach and defend? Okay, so look at what verse six says. Here's, here's how, let's, how do we examine the ability of an elder to manage? We don't have to look any further than how does an elder manage his family? Verse six says this. It says an elder should have faithful children not accused of wildness or rebellion. 
Anybody who's had any length of time as a parent knows the proving ground of what it looks like to manage little sinful hearts, right? Can you think of a better proving ground for managing God's family than a man's own family? In 1 Timothy 3, 5, again, 1 Timothy 3 lays out very similar uh, elder qualifications as we see in Titus. It says this, it says, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? So what are the practical handles when we're looking for how do we examine an elder in this area? How do I want to evaluate somebody's ability to manage their own family? I'd put it this way. Does the elder embody Deuteronomy 6, 5 through 9? If you read that, that, that's God saying, Israel, bathe everything in your children's lives in the truth of God, who God is. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up, bind them as symbols on your hands and tie them on their foreheads, right? Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Does an elder do that? Is he talking about God all the time with his children? Do the children obey and submit to his leadership? But then also ask the question, does that leadership look tyrannical? Or does it look like the patient, loving father that God is to us? How does the elder model uh, Ephesians 6, 4? You know, don't exasperate your children. The reason these things are so important is because the little church, it's what the Puritans used to call uh, a family. If the elder can't manage that, all of those same type of things that you're going to run into as a parent, you're going to see those as an elder in managing God's family. So we can see how the context of how an elder manages is so important. But now look at what Paul take the transition to, because what we're going to see Paul transition to is not just how does he manage God's household, but what is he going to model for God's household? And here's where we're really going to start to fly into it. He says this, he says, for an overseer in verse seven, as God's administrator, as God's administrator must be blameless. Now real quick, just like pastor, when you see the term overseer, just interchange that with elder. Okay, those terms are, are interchangeable. He's not talking about a different office. He's still talking about the same thing here. Paul uses blameless above reproach for the second time. And again, this is how important that this is. And the reason that he does this is that he links it to the word administrator. Now, an administrator, you can think of the term steward. It's just somebody that is acting as a manager on behalf of somebody else's interests. And this ultimately is what elders do. Like I said earlier, Candale Church doesn't belong to the elders. It belongs to God. And that's why the quality of being blameless above reproach is so important because of what it is that the elders are entrusted with. And in Hebrews 13, 17, it tells us that us as elders, we are accountable for the stewardship of God's church. I'm telling you, when uh, I was going through the process of becoming an elder at Candeo, that was the most sobering verse I could encounter. It helps us understand the weight of what we're being asked to and should temper the heart of any man who would desire to be an elder for notoriety or self-exaltation. So as Paul establishes the importance of being blameless or reproach, he then lists out five vices, which should be a model for a church of what should not be present in an elder's lives, what we should put off. God knows that if any one of these characteristics are a controlling factor in our lives, it's going to discredit the gospel change that he wants us to display to a lost world. So buckle up, we're going to fly through these things. He says this, he says, an elder should not be arrogant, or maybe your Bible might say self-willed. And here's why. A self-willed man ultimately wants his own way, not God's way. And as a steward, I don't have a right to be self-willed or arrogant when for caring for somebody else's stuff. I don't have a right to be arrogant when caring for God's people. Paul says an elder should not be hot-tempered. Elders are consistently in the messiness of people's problems and conflicts that arise from those problems. 
What do you think is gonna happen with when all the messiness, you have an elder that's hot-tempered? The Bible puts a ton of emphasis on patience throughout the Bible. Proverbs 14, 29 says, a patient person shows great understanding, but a quick-tempered one promotes foolishness. God does not want elders to be hot-tempered. Paul goes on, he says, an elder should not be addicted to wine. An elder is not to be preoccupied, controlled by, or overindulgent with any type of alcohol or any substance for that matter. Candeo, all of us should be controlled by one thing and one thing alone, and that's the power of the Holy Spirit. That should be the only intoxicating substance we ever have is the, the Spirit of God that's in us. He continues on, he says, an elder should not be a bully, or maybe your Bible might say pugnacious, which I think is a really cool word. The Greek word for that is derived from the actual verb to strike or to hit something. Having a desire to pick fights, either physically or verbally, because oftentimes we might not be great with our fists, but we, we fight with our words. It's not a quality that God wants his stewards to have. I mean, think through all the multitude of tense situations that elders are gonna consistently find themselves in. Somebody with a bad temper prone to strike is not one who's gonna cause those tensions to get better, they're gonna get worse. God does not want a bully on a team. And the final one is he says, an elder should not be greedy. If an elder is in this for the money, he's in this for the wrong reasons. We as elders should set the pace in what it looks like to live a life of contentment and generosity, not greed and selfishness. So after Paul lays out these, these five vices that we should avoid, he says, now put these things on, elder. This is what an elder should have put on. These are six virtues that should be present in models in an elder's life. First one, Paul says that an elder should be hospitable. Hospitality is not a word for I throw a great party. That's not the measure of hospitable as an elder is. Biblical hospitality literally means pursue the love of strangers. God says an elder should love what is good. So what does this look like practically? What's an elder's lead foot? His lead foot should be one of kindness, patience, generosity, focused on the benefit of other people. Paul says an elder should be sensible, showing good judgment and common sense. An elder should see things from a place of objectivity, not subjectivity, when evaluating problems and conflicts. Paul continues on and says an elder should be righteous, or maybe your Bible, Bible might say just. And the best synopsis I think I found in the entirety of the Bible of what a righteous, just man looks like is the one that's found in Job chapter 29, verses 14 through 17. He says this, he says, I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy and I investigated the case which I did not know. And I broke the jaws of the wicked and snatched the prey from his teeth. I can't think of a better definition of what a just man, a righteous man looks like. Paul continues on and says, uh, an elder should be holy, or your translation might say devout. And this means being firmly committed to God's word, despite the changing times, the changing uh, cultural leanings and things like that. An elder should be someone who is so happy in God that sin has simply lost its appeal. That's, that's the best definition I found for holiness. An elder is to be holy. An elder is to be self-controlled. Or maybe your translation might say discipline. And self-controlled ultimately boils down to this. It ultimately boils down to being spirit-controlled. Proverbs 25, 28 describes just how like a city without walls becomes vulnerable to invasion and pillaging and robbers and stuff like that. So is a man who's undisciplined and without self-control. And finally this, 
Paul says an elder should hold to the faithful messages taught. The specific tasking that Paul is assigning to the elders is anchored in his unwavering clinging to the word of God. Candale, all of these qualities are culminating here kind of to a crescendo in verse nine. Because if you look at verse nine, all of these things that Paul has laid out, all the things that should not be part of an elder's life, all the things that should are so that an elder will be able both to encourage with sound teaching and to refute those who contradict it. If all these other things are true of an elder, then he should be able to soundly teach the truth of God's word. The Bible had better be a prospective elder's continual course of study. I care way more about, if I were to ask an elder, what are the three books you're reading? And I don't hear the Bible as, as part of one of them, that's a cause us to ask some questions. The Bible has to be the sound teaching that an elder encourages with. And out of that, the elder is able to refute those who contradict it. God knows that within faithful teaching, Satan is gonna try and insert unfaithful teaching. He does that all the time. Second Timothy chapter four says this. It says, rebuke, correct, and encourage with grace, patience, and teaching. For the time will come when they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. A qualified elder must be able to take on an unfaithful message that's beginning to emerge. He has to be able to do that, even though it's gonna be unpopular. And he's gonna do it with grace and truth. So Kandea, as we look at these things, as we, as we look at these five verses, we have to ask this question. I wanna land with this. In light of these qualifications, how do they intersect with me? That's ultimately where each of us has to land. And as an elder, as I began to study this passage out about a month ago, I had to ask myself that very question first. I said, how do these qualifications impact my life considering I'm one of the elders at Kandeo? And it calls me to do a self-assessment I don't know if I was ready to have. John MacArthur says this, he says, whatever the leaders are, the people will become. And I know for me personally, and I, I know to a man on our team, they feel the weight of that. And so this made me ask myself, are there patterns that I've fallen into in the areas of arrogance, self-control, the proper handling of alcohol, greed, holding fast to God's word? Are there areas like that that need to be corrected? I'm telling you, Candeo, if these are areas or these are patterns in my life that you observed, you have a right to come to me in grace and truth and call me to repent of those things. And if I'm unwilling to repent of those things, I should not be one of your elders, nor should any of the other guys on the team. You have a responsibility as members of Candeo to examine me and your team regularly in these areas and doing it in grace and truth. This is for the health of God's church. And we've seen how important God's church is. But Candale, these qualifications intersect with you too in two very important ways. First, when these qualities are present in the team, the, the group of men that you've affirmed, please let them lead in the freedom that comes with trust. You heard me mention uh, Hebrews 13, 17 a little while ago. Hebrews 13, 7 or 1317 informs members in as much as it does the elders that are leading them. It says this, it says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. Members of Candeo, hold our team accountable for these character qualities. And when that happens, 
okay? Please overlay any complaint, any frustration, any lack of distrust with what you know to be true of the men that you've affirmed because they have these character qualities. You know what happens when we do this? We say, God, I trust in the infallible you that's over these fallible, albeit qualified men. You're saying, God, I trust in your good design for your church, which you care way more about than us, and I'm gonna follow that design. And Candy, watch what God does with that. I look back over the last nine years of, of being a part of, of uh, the Candy elder team, and I've watched a body of people live out Hebrews 13, 17, entrusting fallible guys who have an infallible God that's over them. But here's the other ways that these verses intersect with you in a really important way, is that if these qualities are measures of spiritual health that God has identified that need to be present in a church as leaders, how could we also not as members also wanna grow in each of these qualities? After Paul lays out these very similar qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, he says this, he says, I write these things to you, hoping to come to you soon, but if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to act in God's household which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Kendo, don't look at these qualities that God has identified for elders. Don't be fine with these qualities not also be true, being true of you. Pursue them, grow in them, delight in them. This is what a gospel changed life looks like. So as we continue to study through Titus this spring, we're gonna see it being a North Star for what it looks like to have a gospel changed life. And as we've seen this morning, the characters of a, of a gospel changed life should look like something, but they should look like something first in the leaders that God has called to lead a church. Leaders go first. But perhaps this morning, God's shown you this morning some ways in which your life isn't aligning with these qualities yourself. The reality this morning is that Candeo has a group of elders who are leading the way. I think they're gonna be on the screen behind us here. And I love to have a visual representation of who God has called to lead Candeo Church. Candeo, these are your elders. These are your examples. They're fallible men, but they're qualified because they embody First, or excuse me, Titus chapter uh, one, verses five through nine. They're not just our elders, they're our examples. And our responsibility is not just to assess our own lives against these qualities in Titus, but it's also to submit to the leadership that God has given us through these guys. Elders to be example of what it looks like for the gospel to produce, produce godliness, and so are you. So this week I ask two things. This week, Pray for the Holy Spirit to empower you to change in the ways that you need to be based on this passage. And two, please pray for these guys. There's a target on their back, I guarantee you. God wants to go after their marriages. He wants to go after their families. He wants to go after their reputations. He wants to go on the after the patterns that they live. Pray for their purity. Pray for their marriages. Pray for their children. Pray that God would empower them through the Holy Spirit to continue to live exemplary lives as they serve and lead. This has been a message from Candeo Church. To learn more about us or to hear more messages, visit us at candeochurch.com.